Rob Cartledge of robcartledgeministries.com. Titus 2.1 says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Multitudes of professed Christians around the globe are perplexed when it comes to doctrine and clearly articulating their faith. Because of this lack of understanding, many Christians are believing the most absurd and heretical beliefs. And due to this, we have seen an incredible increase of cultish views even inside of mainstream churches. This series, Critical Doctrine, is to confront this dilemma with clear and precise teaching on the basic foundational doctrines of our faith. And this is our third session in the Critical Doctrine series in which we are focusing upon the doctrine of Christology. That means the doctrine of Christ. So let's, just before we get started, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we just uh, give you glory and give you praise for what you are are doing among us and uh, the wonderful service that we've already had. And I pray that you now allow this sermon to just uh, top it all off, Lord. That you would help me to present uh, the theology and or the doctrine of Christology clearly and adequately so that we can really get something from it and grow in our understanding of the Christian faith. And so that we would not be deceived by the um, various arguments of different uh, belief systems in relation to who you are, but we will understand who you are so clearly that we can uh, be able to articulate it to others and, and help them to see the truth also. So I pray that critical doctrine, this uh, sermon of critical doctrine today, will be of benefit to everybody that uh, that will hear it in the name and the blood of Jesus. Amen. In relation to critical doctrine or in relation to doctrine, um, Chuck Missler, I, I owe Chuck Missler for this screen. I don't know him, actually. I don't know him anything. Um, but I'll thank him for it because he, he really laid out systematic theology quite clearly so that we can see what it is. And we got this from his video called Prophecy 101. Uh, and what he said was basically that a, an average systematic theology collection in, in a pastor's library will usually consist of the first one being Christology, which is the study of Jesus Christ, Theology proper, which is the study of the attributes of God. And pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. Angelology, which is the study of angels, fallen and unfallen. Anthropology, which is the study of man. Soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Eschatology is the study of end times, end things. Or last things, Israelology, which is something that Chuck added here, and for a very significant reason, which is the study of Israel as God's instrument. And it's not listed in virtually any set of systematic theology books, yet five-sixths of the Bible speaks about Israel. But the in the last 2,000 years, systematic theology has pretty well ignored Israel as a separate study in, in, in doctrine or in theology. Now, in the study of Christology, we're going to break it down. We've studied the deity of Christ, haven't we? We've done two sessions already on the deity of Christ. I'm going to finish that off today um, because I think that's the most significant element to the study of Christology. We're also, today, we're going to aim to study the humanity of Christ, the incarnation and the proofs of his humanity. We're going to study the union of the deity and the humanity of Christ. Also, the kenosis of Christ. And we have to be careful with the kenosis of Christ uh, because there's, there's quite a few viewpoints that sort of 
uh, are against this or it's, there's a lot of debate in relation to it. Kenosis simply means the renunciation of the divine nature, at least in part, by Christ in the incarnation. So it's like he was giving up his attributes of God to become a human. And uh, we're going to study that so you can understand that I don't believe Jesus actually gave up his godly attributes when he came to earth. I believe he had them all, but he was limited in his ability to use them according to the will of God. So we're going to study that as well. We're going to study the impeccability of Christ, which is that Christ, Christ's perfection, his inability to sin. We'll be looking at the offices he occupied in the earth, earthly life of Christ, that he was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a king, all in one. We'll look at the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the fact of the resurrection, the nature of the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection, and the importance of the ascension. And we'll also be looking at the present ministry of Christ, which is what's, what he's doing today. And we'll look at the future ministry of Christ, is what he will do when he comes again. So I think all of these are very important um, areas that we've got to look at and study and, and get an insight into. Now, I think it's important for us to understand also the difference between theology and apologetics. This came from William Lane Craig, who gave us clear distinctives between the, these two projects of the faith. Theology works from above, from above. You begin with Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and work down. You see the Bible as the authoritative and inspired word of God, meaning you accept the Bible as authoritative. You accept the Bible as true, and you study the Bible as it is and try to find and create your doctrines from the Bible alone. Now, whereas apologetics works from below in that it doesn't assume the truth of the Christian faith for the sake of an unbeliever. So you might be a believer, you might believe the Bible is true and study theology, but when you're talking to an unbeliever, you can't talk from the angle that the Bible is authoritative because they don't believe it is. So you, you talk from a, a down here point of view and try to reach them using other means. And that's the study of apologetics. And that's why we study both in this church, because I believe it's important. The two approaches involve two quite different projects, as you can imagine. It's, they're quite, quite different in, in your headspace and how to think and how you should uh, speak and, and so on. Okay, now we're just going to uh, finish off our study of the deity of Christ. If you can get your Bibles open. If someone ever comes to you and claims that Jesus is not God, like if you have to talk to a Jehovah Witness or a Christian Delphian or a Mormon or, or someone that, that will claim that Jesus is not God, yet they assume that the Bible is authoritative, you might think to yourself, oh, what are all those scriptures that Rob told me to remember, you know, in relation to that? My recommendation would be just do this. Go to 1 John. Simply go to 1 John and start reading it. Because as you read it, there are that many references to the deity of Christ that it will be all you need. You won't need anything else except the book of 1 John. And so that's easy to remember, isn't it? If you're talking to someone to prove God's, uh, that Jesus is God, the book of 1 John. And we're going to use some of these scriptures here. We're going to go to verse 1. Everyone there? 1 John is near the end. It's three books, a few books from Revelation. Chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. So they're talking about Jesus because they've seen with their eyes, they've looked at, and their hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. 
So Jesus is distinctly called the word of life. Now, from that point, you could jump to the book of John, the actual gospel of John, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us for a while. And it would confirm. Both of these uh, verses would confirm each other. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we write this to make our joy complete. So our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So that is stated quite clearly here. Now let's go to, down to verse 7. And it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's talking about Jesus, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. So again, a reference to Jesus as being the Son of God. If we go to chapter 2, verse 22, it says, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So if anyone denies the Father and the Son, uh, they are Antichrists. So a Christian who denies the Father and the Son is an Antichrist. And they're in rebellion towards God by doing that. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So no one who denies the Son has the Father. So if you deny Jesus as the Son of God, you don't have the Father either. So again, a Jehovah Witness denies Jesus as the Son of God, therefore they don't have the Father either. They have nothing. They are believing in a no God. Because our God, the God of the Bible, is a God who consists of three persons. He's one God. But that God is a relationship of three persons. So no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised to us, even eternal life. And he says this, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So anyone who's trying to tell you that Jesus is not the Son of God is trying to lead you astray. And the Bible is clear against that. Let's go to 3. Chapter 3, verses 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. That's, he's impeccable. He has no sin. No one who lives in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him, known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then it says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So again, the reason the Son of God appeared, meaning in a physical form so that we could see him, was to destroy the works of the devil. And I'm going to be bringing that up later as well. 3.23, it says, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son. God's commanding us to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his command lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. There's other scriptures that say you cannot say Jesus is the Son of God except by the spirit. So that's saying that people who, who deny Jesus being the Son of God, they don't have the spirit because they can't have. 
Because if they did have the Spirit of God, they would be able to say Jesus is the Son of God. 4, 9 to 10 says this. Where's number nine? Uh, there's nine. This is how God showed us his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So again, another scripture that clearly reveals him as God. 4, 13 to 15, and it says this, We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. So if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, the Father lives in you. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. I think I went a scripture too far, but it doesn't matter. 5, 1 to 13 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Can I I'll go back on that? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. See, who loves his child, the child being Jesus Christ. So if you, don't love, if you don't love God, you don't love his child. This is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Verse 4 says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that. Jesus is the Son of God. It's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> it's John's really making it clear in, in the book of 1 John. So I would say that a lot of these false religions that or false Christian faiths that don't deny that Jesus is the deity of God or is his deity will just ignore the book of 1 John. Other than that, other than that, they would just they would um, change it. They would change all the references so that it won't say it. And that's why you have a the New World um, translation of the scriptures in for the Jehovah Witnesses. He's changed the scriptures so that all of these scriptures don't read this way. And he says he's had the authority to do that. He wasn't even a scholar. He wasn't even an ancient Greek scholar to be able to change the scriptures as he did. He just changed them to suit his theology, that's all, which is pretty, it's pretty wicked stuff. So we go to verse 5 again. Who is he that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And is it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Just a little bit further. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God and has this testimony in his heart, has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. You know, it's so clear, isn't it? If you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, you've made God out to be a liar. These are heavy words. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
And the last one we're going to do is just 520. It says, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He says it straight. He is the true God and eternal life. Isn't that incredible? And, you know, if you read on, I think in 2 John there's more references to, to his deity as well. I don't think it. I know it. So who's convinced? Does the Scriptures declare that Jesus is the Son of God? Will you let anybody ever tell you that the Scriptures do not declare that Jesus or that we've been deceived in, by thinking that? We are told that those that will try to tell us contrary are deceivers. So don't listen to them. Okay, we're going to study the humanity of Christ. I just want to say, if you really want to get to the bottom of this subject of the doctrine of Christ and discover the many varied views that has been held over the centuries as to who Jesus Christ is and, and all of the doctrine of Christology, um, if you go to William Lane Craig's uh, sermons called uh, Defenders, he does a Defenders class, and it's basically um, doctrinal, a doctrinal study of, of um, different areas of systematic theology. He's currently doing... Uh, Christology, and he's done, I think, about 18 sessions or something like that. And they are fantastic. He does a, like a historical survey of all the different beliefs that the church has come up with over the years and all the contrary conflicting beliefs and, and uh, really worthwhile having a listen to if you really want to get deep into it. So I'm going to be referencing William Lane Craig a little bit in this sermon. He said, how are we to make sense of his divinity and his humanity? If he was truly God, then how could he be human? On the other hand, if he was truly man, then was he not divine? How can the infinite and the finite be combined in one person? How can the infinite, meaning eternal, and the finite, meaning he's only have a short time and then he dies, how can they become one? And these are good questions. The humanity and the divinity of Christ in one man has been a cause for much debate and even wild speculation over the centuries. And we'll go into just a few of those speculations in another screen. But the first thing is, is the incarnation. The incarnation is pretty well the embodiment of God the Son in human flesh as Jesus Christ. So the embodiment that Jesus gets a human form, gets a physical form. Now that is a stumbling block for most people who don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, because they say he was just a man. Why? Because his physical appearance was that of a man. So how can a man be God? And then they go the next step and say, well, there's no God either. So then Jesus, if there's no God, and then Jesus claimed to be God, then he's just, he's like a Krishna or a, you know, Muhammad or someone, but he's definitely not God. William Lane Craig said, The doctrine of the incarnation is not that the Son's divine nature somehow took on a human nature. Rather, the claim is that the second person of the Trinity who has a divine nature took on, in addition to his divine nature, a human nature as well. So you shouldn't think of the incarnation in terms of two natures somehow blending together. Indeed, the classical formulation is that the natures remain unchanged and distinct but they are united only in the sense that there is one person who comes to have them both. One person coming to have both. So you've got to think of it as Jesus clothed himself with a human nature, with a physical nature when he came to earth. He put on a human nature and he, he gained a new nature. He didn't 
let go of his other nature, which was his God nature. He didn't release it or, you know, as the in the theory of the kenosis or the theology of kenosis. He didn't let go of those attributes so he could become human. He had them all but placed on human form upon his body. So Christ added a human nature to his divine nature. He did not subtract his divine nature to take on his human nature. So the purposes for the incarnation were to reveal God to men. And if let's zip through, I might actually read them because that way you guys don't have to, I don't have to wait for you all the time. If we go to John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but God the only Son who is at the Father's side has made him known. He's made him known how? By revealing himself as a human. And he also was, his purpose of the incarnation was to provide an example for living. If we go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And we're told elsewhere as well that we should imitate Christ. We should be like him. So he came as an example. He came to provide a sacrifice for sin, which is Hebrews 10, 1 to 10, which describes the sacrificial system, the way it was done with lambs and goats, and that all of those sacrifices can never really take away sin. But Jesus came once and for all, laid his life down for us so that we can have life in his name, and that was to provide a sacrifice for our sins. He also came to destroy the works of the devil. Do you remember we read that earlier in 1 John? Yeah, I'll read it once more just to refresh your memory. 1 John 3.8, and it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So he came because the world was under the grip of Satan. It still is. Satan is still the ruler of this of this world, but he came to destroy it. So those who become Christian have the power to overcome everything that the devil can throw at them. And he came to fulfill the promise of a son to sit on a throne forever, as in the throne of David and also the throne of God, and which will become one after the 1,000 years of peace talked about in the book of Revelation. The Lord God had to become incarnate in order to walk a sinless life and fulfill the whole of the law, Remember, he had to complete the, fulfill the law. To become a sinless and, and pure sacrifice, he had to fulfill every element of the law. That means he could do no wrong. Who finds it hard even in one day to do no wrong? But imagine trying to walk an entire life and not do any wrong and know that the consequences of doing one wrong would mean the loss of all of humanity. That was the pressure that was on Jesus. But, of course, he was God, so he had a bit of an advantage <laughs> So he could do that, he could fulfill it, but he still had to do it, and he did. He lived an impeccable life and went right the way through life and fulfilled the whole of the law and became an unblemished sacrifice. See, if he had sin, he wouldn't be unblemished. You know, in the Old uh, Testament, when a lamb was brought to be slaughtered for uh, their sins, to be sacrificed for the sins, the lamb had to be the best in the flock. It had to be unblemished. You know, without black spots or stripes or anything, had to be a pure lamb. And that's what Jesus was. And it says here, he became an unblemished sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. This scripture plays on Calvinist minds. 1 John 2 2. 1 John 2 2. And it says. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
So not only for those that believe, but for the whole world, if they would believe. We won't go down the Calvinist road and try to explain what their concepts are there. I agree with some parts of their theology and I disagree with others, but that's another story. The proofs of the humanity of Jesus Christ. I won't read these scriptures out, but he was born. We all know the story of his birth. We see it, we, we watch it on TV and hear about it at Christmas time every year. Jesus referred to himself as a man in John 8.40. He had a soul, is referenced in Matthew 26.38. He underwent temptation, Matthew 4.1. Physical limitations. He hungered in Matthew 4.2. He was tired in John 4.6. He thirsted in John 19.28. He had mental limitations implied in Luke 2.52 and Mark 13.32 where um, uh, I think it was Mark 13, 32, where he said that no one knows the day or the hour, but only God, the Father. So he had mental limitations. But they were only limited according to the will of God. He wasn't supposed to know it then. But I'm sure the moment he went and ascended to be with God, he would have known it then. But at that time, he was limited. Didn't mean he didn't have the powers of omnipotence and omniscience and all those things, all knowingness. and Because he did, he, he used those powers at times, didn't he? He used his omnipotence to walk on water. He used his omniscience so he could tell what people were thinking. He knew what they were thinking. So it's omniscience. He's all-knowing. So he had those powers, but they're only limited while he was in a physical form. And he also died, as we, as we well know. Okay, now the union and the, of deity and humanity in Christ. And this is Charles Ryrie. And these are the reasons why we, we really need to understand this is everything that can be questioned about the proposition that Jesus Christ was one person with two natures, divine and human, has been questioned. Some have denied the deity of Christ, the Ebionites and the Arians. They've denied that he is, you know, and, uh, is God, which is also the Christadelphians and the Jehovah Witnesses and, and many others. Others denied the reality of his humanity, feeling that he was simply a phantom-like appearance of God. So they believe he was a spirit creature and he, he appeared to be human, like in a physical form, but he really wasn't. He wasn't really in human form. Uh, the Ap Apollinarians claimed that the humanity was incomplete, the spirit being that of the eternal Logos. Others declared that he was ado adopted as divine at his baptism in Unitarians. That when Jesus said today, uh, when God said today I've become your father, they believed that meant that today, that moment, he was adopted. But uh, they completely misunderstand that whole uh, bit of theology there. Jehovah's Witnesses claim that he was God's highest created representative, but definitely was not the son of God. Barthians hold that he was fully human, including a sinful nature, and that God worked through this man to reveal himself, especially at the cross. So these are the different differing beliefs that we have of who Jesus is. The union of the deity of humanity of Christ, I'm still going on with that. If Christ had two complete natures, both God and man, then what would it, that would indicate that he would be two persons. So how do we reconcile this? If he has two natures, that would be two persons, because you can't have two natures and be one person usually. But William Lane Craig comes to the rescue. <laughs> he says... the. <laughs> the Council of Chalcedon laid down the boundary markers for orthodoxy, namely that in Christ there is one person that exists in two natures, and any Christological speculation must steer a course between these parameters. We must neither divide the person nor confuse the natures. So he chose to use the 
William Lane Craig sees the statement at Chalcedon, which was when they all the various church members got together and discussed this whole you know, dilemma that they all had because they had differing views and opinions on it, and they came with, it, with guidelines for us to steer, be steered by in our faith and our belief in Christ. And this is the statement. I'm not going to read it all. But following the Holy Fathers, we all with one consent teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial, which means the same substance or essence. So he's consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, but he's consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us, but was without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. Question that a little bit. Yeah. According to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. Oh, and I won't read any more. The only problem I have with Mother of God God doesn't have a mother. God does not have a mother. Jesus always referred to Mary as woman. She was an incubator for God to, for God to place in the womb of Mary, and she acted as a mother, but Mary herself had to be saved through Jesus to get into heaven. She didn't have suddenly extra rights because she gave birth to Jesus. She still had, had sinned. She still lived in, with a sinful nature. She still needed Jesus' salvation. So she had to believe in her son, and which she did, didn't she? She followed Jesus. She was at the foot of the cross, and she lived the life of a Christian life after Jesus died, and she had to be saved like anybody else. Does it make any sense that she was the earthly mother? She was the earthly mother, but not. We, it's, she was the earthly mother of Jesus, the Jesus, man. Yeah. But she's not the mother of God because God is the Father and Jesus is the Father. And the Father has no mother. No, nobody or nothing created or gave birth to the Father. So the mother of God is a very misleading statement. Born of the Virgin Mary is a, is a much better way of looking at it. And the Bible says she's the most blessed of women because, you know, how blessed would you have to be to have you know, the Messiah in your belly. So that statement can lead you to think that God, the Father, had a mother. And who's that? Mary. Therefore, Mary must be deity. Therefore, she can be worshipped. Therefore, she must be God herself. But she's not. She's not deity. She's not God. She should not be worshipped. Jesus should be worshipped because he is God. Does that make sense? Some theologians will say that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Has any, anyone ever heard that? That Jesus is fully God and fully man? I don't think that is a correct way of describing Jesus' divinity and humanity, however. I'll tell you why. Because how can Jesus be fully God? If he was, then there would be no room for the humanity, for his humanity. If he's fully God, if you've got a full glass of water, can it be a full glass of water and a full glass of Coke at the same time? It can't, can it? A better way of saying it would be that he was truly God and truly man. Not fully, truly. That way, sorry? We need another glass. We need another glass. 
William Lane Craig brings up, he didn't like the statement fully God and fully man because of its misleading nature. But truly God and truly man is a much better way of saying it. He is truly God and truly man of the same substance as the Father, but like us in every respect, except that he was without sin. William Lane Craig said that Jesus Christ has two complete and distinct natures, a complete God nature and a complete human nature. They don't combine together to make a new species like a God-man because then he would be neither God nor man but some kind of new thing, a hybrid. But Christ is the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus had the essential nature of God and the contingent nature of man in that he didn't have to take it on but he chose to. My only problem with the statement William made above is that at the resurrection we will take on a new nature by receiving an imperishable body, the same that Christ now has. So in that we will be a new type of creature. And it says we, we are new creatures, aren't we? The only thing I have with what he said there, and I put that there because that can be a something, and I'd love William Lane Craig to actually correct me if I'm wrong. In a sense, when you say Jesus was a God-man, that's not a misstatement. And he was not of the same kind as we are. He was God in man, where none of us are God in man. So he was a new kind of existence because Jesus in heaven did not have a human nature. But when Jesus came to earth, he, he gained a human nature. Therefore, God got a new nature. So he was a God man. My problem with that is that he did become a new type of being, a new kind of existence. 1 John 3, 2 to 3, and this is where I get this from. I'm going to pull up the scriptures. Dear friends, now we are children of God and that we will, and what we will be, listen to this, and what we will be has not yet been made known. See, so we're going to be something that hasn't been made known yet, what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So we'll be taking on a new type of existence for we shall see him as he is everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure and then 1 corinthians 15 51 to 53 says listen i tell you a mystery we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality so for us to be immortal, we would have to be a different type of existence than we are now, because at the moment we're perishable. So why must we be changed into this new creation? 1 Corinthians 15, 15, it says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So when Jesus entered into heaven with his perishable body, which was raised from the dead, it had to be changed. So he took on an imperishable body because even his body had to be changed so that he could enter into heaven. So we are new creatures in Christ now in our spirit, but the flesh will be changed at the resurrection because the Bible says that we're new creatures now. So the moment you accept Jesus, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you see the Holy Spirit, you become a new creature in Christ from that moment. It says, therefore, if anyone, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And that is referencing before we knew Christ or before we came to Christ, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But when we accepted Christ, we were made alive. Is that right? That's in there, isn't it? 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then if we're reconciled, we are now called to reconcile. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation. We have been called to reconcile others into, into Christ. So this not only puts together who Christ is, but who we are in Christ. We are ambassadors. Who feels like an ambassador for Christ when you walk through your day? Wednesday Sometimes. nights. Wednesday nights. <laughs> Bill, when he opens up the shop doors, yeah. certain people come in. Well, I'm ambassador. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should have a little badge. Ambassador of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just uh, thank you for your word today. And I, I pray that some of what I've preached today will get into our hearts. And just, if anything, I know a lot of what I said, many of us will probably know. Um, but I pray that this solidifies our faith, strengthens our faith, so that we can't be swayed by people who would come along and try to tell us something else other than that you are God. If these deceivers would try to convince us that... Um, of anything which is not doctrinally accurate, that we would know it and see it clearly. We'll not be swayed, even the remotest bit. Lord, your word says that the elect uh, in the last days will be those that are going to stand strong. And so, Lord, in that sense, we've got to know our theology. We've got to get stronger in our faith and understanding of, of who we believe in, that it's, we are believing in the true one and only God. I just pray, Lord, that you really help us to see that that you really help us to get a grip on that and not take it for granted, not take our faith as a just, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, you know, we'll keep that private. But, Lord, we'll just, that we'll take our faith as a serious matter and that at the right time when, when it's required, we will speak to certain people in our family, our friends, and, and uh, we'll judge those moments by the Spirit and that, Lord, somehow we'll be able to reach them. And that you'll give us the faith to believe that our words can be effective in changing someone's heart to turn to you. And I pray that you'll um, help us to be, become those ambassadors that you've called us to be. So I pray all of this in your wonderful name and pray that this uh, message will go on to impact us in, in years to come as well. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>